Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, July 14th, 2016. Look at it, what awaits. Might want to wear a helmet. Some protective gear may help. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, yeah, you probably believe it's the Word of God, and it is, so let's open it up and let's do some comparative work. The Apostle Paul, by the way, uh, even though he was an apostle sent by Jesus Christ himself, um, he got to be fact-checked, yeah, he did, in fact, uh, in the book of Acts, we learned that the church in Berea, well, the people before they were a church in Berea, heard the message that the Apostle Paul gave, and then they diligently examined the scriptures to see if what he was saying was true. Yeah, and it says of the Bereans that they had a noble character, a character that was more noble than the Thessalonians, because they actually did the fact-checking. So the idea here is, you know, I understand there are popular people that you just love to listen to. They really inspire you. They, oh, they make you want to stand up and go and conquer the world. I get it. But the question is, is the message that pastor teaching you or prophet prophetess teaching you, or self-appointed apostle or apostolate, is the message that person is teaching you actually what God's Word teaches? Now, I know that it just might seem that this is a politically incorrect thing for me to be doing. I get it. I get it. And I don't ask you to give me a pass. In fact, I challenge you, when you listen to Fighting for the Faith, don't ever take my word for it. Don't give me the benefit of the doubt. Don't listen with an open mind. No, all I ask is that you listen with an open Bible. And there are literally now thousands and thousands of people who've listened with an open Bible who thought I was the biggest gunky head and hater in the whole world who now realize, wait a second, these people who Chris is warning me about, they are not actually teaching God's Word, and they've since left churches that, well, they weren't being fed or taught, and have found really good Bible-teaching churches where the pastor 
proclaims repentance and the forgiveness of sins, and doesn't engage in any monkey business when it comes to the biblical text. They don't scratch any itching ears. And you know what? It's really important. The reason why it's really important is not because I say so. It's because the Word of God says so. All right, let's talk about what we're going to do with today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, We're going to be heading over to Freedom House Church, Freedom House Church, and we're going to be listening to a person we've never listened to before, but I've added added him to my watch list. His name is Troy Maxwell, and we're going to be doing a uh, a Narcissus update, and uh, he's going to be explaining to us what the word wingman means and who it refers to, apparently, when it comes to being a Christian. I wish I was making this up. Then we're going to be doing a news update. There's a news story that uh, Mark Driscoll, yeah, it's been a while since we've done a Mark Driscoll update, will be hosting a church health conference. <laughs> I, You know, I wish I was making that up. I mean, the irony is ridiculously thick, so uh, we will do some comparative work, see what, what we can compare this bit of news to. Uh, then we're going to be doing a David Crank update and uh, listen to um, a, a part of a message well titled Mana Mentality. Do you have a mana mentality? Apparently, uh, the reason why God um, God wanted us to understand that he fed the children of Israel manna while they were in the wilderness was, well, so that when they got to the promised land, that we can make a big distinction between the manna mentality and actually being prosperous. Uh huh. And then after that, we're going to head down to the Hillsong Conference, recently concluded, and listen to Stephen Furtick discuss, uh, well, his book, Unqualified, and uh, the day when he heard that John MacArthur said that he was unqualified. And we'll just say that Stephen Furtick Misses the point. And then in hour number two, we're going to be heading down uh, to Audacious Church out in Manchester in the UK and uh, listen to a sermon by Josh Coker titled Adventure Awaits Into the Wild. Adventure Awaits Into the Wild. Uh, Hopefully you will enjoy today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. And uh, since we're going to be be doing a Narcissus update, well, that requires me to do this. Talking about you makes me grin. But every now and then, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually. But occasionally, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about me. Talk about me. I want to talk about me. Want to talk about I want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually. But occasionally, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about. 
It makes an entertaining country and western song, but I think it would make a bad sermon, don't you think? Anyway, uh, we're heading over to Freedom House Church. We're going to be listening to uh, Troy Maxwell and uh, a part of his uh, sermon series titled Urban Dictionary, and he's going to be discussing that important uh, word. Clearly, it's in the Bible. It's got to be there somewhere. The word is wingman, and uh, well... You probably already guessed who he thinks his wingman is, and if you're thinking, well, who does he think his wingman is? Well, listen in. In our series called Urban Dictionary. If you don't know what the Urban Dictionary is, the Urban Dictionary is an online crowd-sourced dictionary that anybody can participate in. Now, what I found over the last few weeks as we've been talking about this is I am really out of connection with the relevant world when it comes to wor- words. Matter of fact, when I was on vacation, there were some kids talking over the other side. I had to get some translation from my kids on what they were saying. How many of y'all have had to get some translation on, Insta, on, on social media from your kids? You go to your kids, you say, and then have your kids told you, hey, dad, you really don't want to know that one? Have you, have you? My kids have done that to me many times. You don't want to know that one. You need to stay away from that one, Dad. Uh, well, today, I want to continue this series. I want to talk about wingman. Everybody look at your neighbor and say wingman. Now, if you don't know what a wingman is, then you need to go watch Top Gun. Right. Yeah, I, I've seen Top Gun. Um, my question is, you know, listen, I, you know, I, I'm a pastor. You know, I'm bivocational, pirate by week pastor by weekend, and um, my pastoral duties as laid out in Scripture are quite clear. You know, yeah, as a pastor, my job is to preach the Word. That's one of the clear responsibilities. Not only that, I need to be able to handle it correctly, teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, and so I'm kind of scratching my head here and just kind of wondering, um, did he not get the memo? You know, it, it's there are three pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus. And, you know, it clearly lays out, you know, what a pastor is supposed to do, what makes him qualified to do what, you know, to actually be in the pastoral office and things like that. And, yeah, you know, I just think of like Second Timothy, you know, preach the word in season, out of season for times coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, you know, and so... Knowing all of that, it's it's just weird because you know, I, you know, I had an undergraduate degree in religious studies and biblical languages. Uh, you know, been to the seminary, and uh, you know, I'd learned Greek. I know Hebrew, and I'm having a really tough time recalling the Greek word for wingman. Um, at least the biblical Greek word for wingman and um in all of my studies in hebrew and uh um i'm i'm having a tough time finding the word in biblical hebrew that means wingman so i i'm a little lost here at the moment i mean a little confused by what we're doing because that that really explained what a wingman is because when tom cruise gets out of his fighter jet yeah. And he goes to his nemesis, the guy who, you know, kind of attacked him during their training. The Iceman. Yeah, I remember the Iceman. Yeah. And after Tom Cruise had won, because he always wins, 
he, he goes up to this guy and the guy says, you can always be my wingman. Now, what's a wingman? Let me give you a definition All according right. to the Urban Dictionary. A d- definition of a w- Urban Dictionary. I'm assuming that this Urban Dictionary um, doesn't go all the way back to the first century or back into the B.C. period. Got it. And is someone who is on the inside. Everybody say on the inside. Right. And is used to help someone with intimate relationships. Now, in my B.C. days, I had a couple wingmen. B.C. meaning before Christ. Uh, yeah, maybe that's my problem. I, I, I don't have a wingman. Oh, man. <sighs> What am I going to do? I mean, I, I didn't even realize I needed one. Married, okay? So I don't need no wingman except I need a friend Yeah, that can be a wingman that's on the inside because he knows who I am so he can connect me further with the Lord Jesus. Can I get an amen? Uh, huh. Okay, so I, I, I need to go find one of these wingmen. I'm, I'm redeeming wingman for you. You know, if you, if you had a wingman last night at the club, I'm going to redeem him right now, all right? Or her, whoever that may be, okay? Je- yeah, I, um, I don't think I've ever been to a club. Um, okay, um, I'm, I'm just really confused here. Jesus ultimately is our wingman. Everybody say wingman. Uh, <laughs> what? 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 <laughs> Hang on, I, I I did not hear that. Did I I gotta back this up just a bit. Hang on. Connect me further with the Lord Jesus. Can I get an amen? Right. Okay, so I'm I'm redeeming wingman for you. You know, if you if you had a wingman last night at the club, I'm gonna redeem him right now, all right? Or her, whoever that may be, okay? Jesus ultimately is our wingman. Everybody say wingman. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm gonna beat my head into a brick wall here. Um, thankfully, there isn't one handy. Okay. Um, um, see, here, I mm, saw the movie um, uh, Top Gun, and I'm old enough that I saw it in the theaters when it was first released, okay? Went with my good friend um, from high school, Mike, and, you know, we went and saw it in Monrovia. I grew up in Southern California and uh, was living in Arcadia at the time. But uh, we went to Monrovia to watch. And I do remember in the movie Top Gun, the wingman is the guy behind the guy taking the shot. Um, he doesn't get the glory. He doesn't get the kill. They don't even – I don't even think when it comes to, you know, fighter combat – they even talk about like assists, you know. But the wingman's job is to protect the guy who's taking the shot because the guy taking the shot gets all the glory. Um, yeah, so um, Jesus is my wingman. I'm taking the shot. Jesus has got my six protected. Right. Man, um, that puts Jesus in a subordinate role. He ultimately is the one who is on the inside. He knows you inside and out. He knows who you are. He knows your destiny in life. He knows where you're supposed to go. He knows how you're supposed to get there. Right. So Jesus is my homie and my wingman. Oh, man. I'm glad we got this all worked out. I, you know, when I, I grew up in the days when people would talk about Jesus being Lord and King of Kings and the Alpha and the Omega. Um, 
you know, I, I didn't realize he'd been demoted. He wants to introduce us to the Father. Matter of fact, when Jesus was on the planet, his... So he wants to hook you up. Right. He's going to... Got it. Sole goal in ministry, his purpose was to glorify the Father. He was to introduce us to a loving Father. Because up to this point, God had gotten a bad rap. He had become a Father that was legalistic and judgmental. And Jesus came and is... <laughs> what? What on earth are you talking about? <laughs> so that was okay. So I, I that probably explains why there was like a four hundred year gap between the Old <laughs> Testament and the New Testament because the Father like really screwed everything up and it like become way too legalistic and. And so he and Jesus were probably having like a centuries long conversation where, which ended with, you know, Pop, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go and be incarnated and, um, see if we can work on, um, your PR. You know, I'm gonna go let everybody know that, hey, you know, hey, listen, I understand you think that the father is like really cranky and legalistic. But man, I, I came to hook you up and and let and introduce you to the way he really is. Yeah, I know in the Old Testament he he really got a bad rap, and that some of that's on him. I I totally get it. But he, he you know, I'm gonna <laughs> what on earth am I listening to? Actions and his miracles. Yeah, yeah. And in his teaching to his disciples, he taught them the progression of this relationship with the Father. See, Jesus had many relationships on the different layers and levels of relationships. He had the 500 disciples that followed him everywhere. They were a part of his life. They connected. So that was his posse. Got it. With him, they, they, they loved Jesus. However, that crowd of 500 was a little bit fickle. Oh, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, posses generally are, yeah. Find that out later on when they are in the upper room after he has been crucified and raised from the dead because of the 500 that went in the upper room, only 120 remained when the Holy Spirit fell, and it was only 10 days. Right, and so only 120 were left after the 500 saw Jesus alive. So the 120, so, so the, the 500 is his posse, the 120, I mean, is those are his homies, right? You, you see him minister to the 70. So you got the 500, one level of relationship. Yeah. Then you have the next level of relationship, with, which were the 70. The 70 were the ones that he sent out to do ministry. He empowered them two by two to go out and do the ministry that he had been called to do. Then so the 500, you know, they wouldn't get a Christmas card from Jesus, but the 70 might. Got it. At the 12. As dysfunctional as the twelve were, he still yeah. They, but they 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 comprised his leadership team, you know. And Jesus was the vision casting leader to the twelve. I you know I'm sure that's how that worked out. Although no biblical text says that. Kind of had a different level of relationship with them. Yeah. But he also had the three: Peter, James, and John. Right. Yeah, the three. And he then, take it one level deeper, he had the one Peter. Peter was the guy whom you and I can, I believe, connect with the most. Um, right, yeah. 
who's probably out of all the 12, the most dysfunctional. Come on. Come on, raise your hand if you're dysfunctional. Come on, raise your hand, because you need to raise your hand. If you're not, you Yeah, if we're going to be talking about Peter's shortcomings, maybe we should use some biblical texts to do that. Because you know you messed up. All of us are messed up. My hand's higher than all of you. I know I'm messed up. I know I'm... Yeah, this sermon's messed up. I mess. That may be next week's message. Peter was messed up, man. I mean, he had some problems. He was a gruff fisherman. He's a big guy, you know. He always said the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I think that's kind of how we can identify him. What I want to do today is I want to talk about the, this relationship that Jesus had with Peter. And I want you to look. So Jesus was Peter's wingman. At the progression of encounters that Jesus and Peter had that developed him into the father of the first, the first church, the New Testament church. Excuse me. From time to time, we talk about putting the emphasis on the wrong syllable. Okay. This is a prime example of that. Peter is not the father of the church. Christ is the head of the church. Paul makes this explicitly clear in the book of Colossians, and you know, especially end of ch- chapter two, going into chapter three. Jesus is the head. That would make Jesus like the primary dude when it comes to the church. Not Peter. You're making the same mistake the Roman Catholic Church makes. And that is is that they exalt Peter rather than Christ. Talk about missing the point. So connecting all the dots here, we've got to come to the conclusion that Jesus was Peter's wingman. And um, Peter being the father of the church. Oh, man, is that a mess. Um, Jesus was there is his you know, supporting hookup guy to, you know, finally introduce him to the father who had a bad rap because people had come to believe he was legalistic and somewhat cranky. Oh, man, you just cannot make this up. Moving along. Time for a Mark Driscoll update. down the street don't hear god's word no more the pastor says we don't feed no sheep so get busy and amuse those goats don't be lazy you hit to satisfy the leader's god-given vision supreme if you dare to question him well then certainly be a look out another one's off the bus another one's off the bus and another one's off and another one's off another one's off the bus hey He's going to get you to another one's off the bus. One by one, people disappeared, never to be seen again. I thought this whole darn thing was a joke, but I changed my mind when 
saw the pastor jump on the bus, tear out screeching down the street. People were getting squashed like bugs and piled up like dead meat. Look out! Another one's off the bus. Another one's off the bus. And another one's off, and another one's off. Another one's off the bus. Hey, they don't care about you. Another one's off the bus. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. There's a few kind of people. There's people who get in the way of the bus. they got to get run over. There are people who want to take turns driving the bus. they got to get thrown off. <laughs> Because they want to go somewhere else. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. Um, you either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't going to stop. That's right, Los Lobos Ministry Records, another one's off the bus. Mark Driscoll's back. It's no longer the Mars Hill bus, it's the Trinity Church bus Uh huh. in Scottsdale, Arizona. <laughs> and I wish I was making this up, but uh, Kevin Porter of the uh, of Christian Post actually has an article that was published yesterday titled, Mark Driscoll to Host conference on building healthy church <laughs> like what the, the world has gone crazy i mean wow okay so the uh, the story reads even though he's still embroiled in a scandal for his alleged wrongdoings as a senior pastor of the now defunct mars hill church pastor mark driscoll plans to host a conference on <laughs> How to build a healthy church this fall. Driscoll's conference to, to be held from November 15th through the 17th will be headlined by Texas-based Trinity Fellowship Church pastor Jimmy Evans, according to the Seattle Post-Intelligencer. By the way, this is not a Babylon B story. Also included will be Robert Morris, founder of Dallas-Fort Worth-based Gateway Megachurch. Yeah, Dallas, uh, you know, uh, Robert Morris... Total word of faith, you know, shakedown artist. I mean, the guy is a Bible twister extraordinaire. And Brady Boyd, senior pastor of the New Life Church in Colorado Springs. The event will cover issues like, uh, (laughs) issues such as building a healthy church government, (laughs) developing healthy leadership (laughs) within, raising and managing church finances, and creating a healthy philosophy of 
mystery. You have got to be kidding me. This is an absolute joke, right? I mean, I'm sure this will be well attended by seeker-driven types from around the globe. I mean, but I mean, seriously, having Mark Driscoll um, host a conference on building healthy churches is like Hillary Clinton holding a conference on email security. It's, I mean, it's like having Donald Trump host a conference on the importance of fidelity in marriage and staying married to a single person for the entire your entire life, otherwise known as the Trump monogamy conference. I mean, this is like, well, <clears throat> John MacArthur saying we need to have a conference on the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as evidenced by speaking in <laughs> tongues. I mean, it's as if the, the church is somehow suffering from mad cow disease. I You just can't make this stuff up. Keep in mind... Driscoll is a fugitive from church discipline. Mars Hill completely imploded as a result of the literally scandal after scandal after scandal after scandal rocking Mars Hill Church. I mean, from him using church funds and tithe money to, it, well, you know, let's say jerry-rigged the system so that he can become a New York Times best-selling author to his plagiarism, not in just one book, but like multiple, 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 practically every book he ever writ, written, you know, kind of thing. I mean, the, the stories just go on and on and on. And I, I mean, I, I, <laughs> oh, it's, it's unbelievable what's happening but there you have it that's the latest news regarding mark driscoll and if this thing is well attended all i can say is the great apostasy is truly has to be upon us because nobody cares at all anymore in christianity about the biblical qualifications of a pastor or even the doctrinal qualifications because mark driscoll now fails on both fronts. Good night. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we got a David Crank update and a Stephen Furtick update. Stay tuned, don't want to miss them. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church Day Select. 
I do wish these planes would give us passengers more legroom. Hey, let me help you with your luggage. Oh, thank you so much. What in the world do you have in these bags? Bricks. Bricks? I'm a door-to-door brick salesperson. I'm not even going to ask. Ladies and gentlemen, the captain has turned on the fastened seatbelt sign. If you have not already done so, please stow your carry-on luggage underneath the seat in front of you or in an overhead bin. Please take your seat and fasten your seatbelts and make sure your seat back and tray tables are in their full, upright, and locked positions. Thank you. Thank you, Brittany. In case y'all don't know me, I'm Mark Driscoll, and I'm going to be your pilot for today. Oh, dear. He looks more like a terrorist, if you ask me. If any of you passengers feel at any time that you could pilot this plane better than me, then you'll be swiftly thrown under the bus. I mean plane. As you may have noticed, there are also no parachutes on this flight, which means, should you be thrown off the plane, that your landing will be unpleasant. We thank you for flying Mars Hill Air with us today. I guess it's time to take off, then. Well, let's just hope our flight to Boston will be nice and easy. New Jersey anyway! That's it! God, please escort this man to the back of the plane for violent ejection. Hey! I have my rights! You can't do this to people! Oh, but I can. I can't believe that just happened! There's something seriously wrong with all of this. And this is your captain speaking. Do not be alarmed. You are now free to move about the cabin and do as you please. Just whatever you do, don't question my actions or authority. So you're a brick salesperson, huh? Yep. But why on earth would you want to talk about something like that at a time like... Oh. Yeah. I'm thinking it's time that Mr. High and Mighty got relieved of his duties. It is now time for you all to buckle your seatbelts and hold on tight because we are about to start doing barrel rolls. He's going to do what? <laughs> Remember to always trust your pilot. I know what I'm doing. Oh, I do believe the ground is getting awfully close. Liturgical art is a beautiful expression of Christ's great love for us. I'm Kelly Schumacher, founder of Anya's Day Arts, and I would like to help you learn about liturgical art and the beauty it portrays as you view it through paintings, drawings, sculptures, and altarpieces. I'm available to speak with your group. My website is anusdayarts.com, A-G-N-U-S-D-E-I-Arts.com.
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that Jesus is quite a bit more than your wingman, and that it's, well, quite blasphemous to think of him as your wingman. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. You can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, there's two friendly yellow buttons right there in the middle of the homepage. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you get to pick your rank. Your rank is based upon your monthly support. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. Gunner's Mate, $24.95 a month. Master Gunner, $49.95 a month. And Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a fantastic way to support us. And by the way, if you join our crew, yeah, that's right, we have a little bit of a perk. If you join our crew, um, every new crew member from basically now forward will receive a Pirate Christian Radio bumper sticker as well as a Pirate Christian Cairo flag um, Cairo flag sticker itself. Yeah, and it, it, it's a little bit of a perk, not a big one, but everybody who joins our crew moving forward will get those sent to them as our way of saying thank you for joining our crew. If you would like to purchase one, uh, purchase a bumper sticker or a Cairo flag um, sticker, it, it's a die cut thing, you can uh, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the bake sale. The bake sale link, and you can purchase uh, a sticker. You can purchase multiple stickers, or you know, purchase a um, a bumper sticker for yourself, and uh, that we'll send that out to you. Um, of course, if you'd like to make a one-time contribution, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box One Three Three Four Four, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code five eight two zero eight. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, moving along, we have a David Crank update. That requires us to do this. I've just closed my eyes again. Climbed aboard the dream weave train. Trying to take away my Today and leave tomorrow. 
that's right. Uh, David Crank, he's one of those dream weavers. It's all about the dream destiny thingy. Have you discovered your dream destiny thingy? Well, if not, well, you need to learn. And this is what we're going to be hearing from David Crank. You need to learn the importance of overcoming, well, a mana mentality. Do you have a mana mentality? Are you just barely getting by? Apparently, the reason why mana is uh, discussed in the Old Testament is because God's trying to teach us to not have a manna mentality. Here's David Crank to explain. This uh, Baptist preacher, you know, Baptist is really funny about making sure that everything's Baptist. So this Baptist preacher, he wanted a dog, but he knew that the deacon board would really be big on it being a Baptist dog. So he looked and looked every place, took about a year and a half. He finally found a kennel that had a Baptist dog. Isn't that awesome? And uh, he said, are we sure this dog's Baptist? And the guy said, oh, absolutely, the dog's Baptist. said, watch this. He said, Fido, go get the Bible. So the dog runs over, grabs the Bible, brings it over to him. He said, Fido, open up the 23rd Psalm with incredible dexterity with his paws. He gets the 23rd Psalm. Just phenomenal. And he said, this, this is, this is the Baptist dog. So he takes the you know, dog home and they got their connection group that night. The pastor does, all the deacons are over there. And so he says, hey, man, we got a new dog. He said, don't worry, it's a Baptist dog. And they said, well, how are you sure about that? So he said, go get the, go get the Bible. So the dog goes and gets it, as you know, runs over, open up the 23rd Psalm. And he says, this is phenomenal. So one of the deacons said, well, you know what? I, I don't know, that's, that's neat and all, but does it do any regular dog tricks? And he said, well, I don't know. He said, well, let's try that. So he said, heal. And so the dog runs over, lays his paw on the guy and starts howling. Woo! He said, oh, my God, no, the dog is Pentecostal. You're kidding me. I want to talk to you this weekend about miracle manifestations or really, if I had a title, I would probably call it a manna mentality, a manna mentality. Let's go there to Joshua chapter 5, verse 12. And then no more manna. The manna stopped. Everybody shout it stopped. As soon as they started eating the food grown in the land, they ate no more manna for the people of Israel that year ate from the crops of Canaan. That's in the uh, Message Bible. I want to read it from the NIV. It says, Then the manna ceased the day after they had eaten the produce from the land. And the children of Israel no longer had manna, but they ate the food of Canaan that year. God began to speak to me uh, about two weeks ago about manna mentality. About Notice the claim of direct revelation. This teaching comes all the way from the top, you know. Comes all the way from God himself. God was having a conversation with David Crank and said, you know, listen, I, I, I need you to uh, talk to people about having a manna mentality. And, you know, of course, it's not actually taught in the Bible, so... What you're getting, I mean, this is a fresh revelation. I mean, this is a fresh interpretation of Scripture. This is the way it was intended to be understood all along, but until recently, nobody has understood this text to be talking about having a manna mentality. Barely getting by. About God getting ready to bring you into a new season, a new breakthrough, supernatural provision. But sometimes we try to hang on to what was, 
And really, we need to forget about what was and what used to be, and we need to reach forward to what God has for us. This is what was happening with the children of Israel. They had roamed around for 40 years, you know. I mean, I can picture Moses out there, you know, with his GPS on his iPhone going, man, 40 years seems like a long time. 40 years, and it was supposed to be just a few short days on this journey. Well, the reason for that is quite simple. Uh, The children of Israel... Um, had rebelled against God. You remember the story of the spies going into Canaan? Yeah. Um, Yeah, ten were bad, two were good. Ten didn't actually believe and trust God and his word that he would deliver on his promise. Two of them did. That would be Joshua and Caleb. And as a result of their, you know, their lack of faith, they ended up inciting a riot of sorts, uh, children of Israel, where they thought that God, the reason why God had brought them out in the wilderness is to kill them. Apparently there were no graves in Egypt. That's the way they were talking. And as a result of their lack of faith, God punished them. And that generation was forbidden to actually enter the promised land. It was their children, the ones who were brought up and had faith, who were allowed to enter the promised land. They're going around in circles and circles. And you might be there this weekend where you're like, man, I'm tired of looking for my other half. I'm, I'm tired. Of- yeah, no, I'm not going around in circles. What are you talking about? Now, by the way, the wilderness wanderings is a biblical typology. It's reference to us as Christians is the life that we are living now. Having been baptized, but not yet in the promised land. What is the promised land? The new earth. That's right. God's going to make all things new, new heavens, new earth. Even the book of Hebrews explicitly states in chapter 11 that the land that they were looking for, well, wasn't you know a piece of territory here on this current cursed and uh, temporary planet. No, they were looking for a, a city whose builder is none other than God himself. So, uh, yeah, just the promised land is life eternal. That's typologically what's going on here. If you uh, practice the, the discipline of uh, letting Scripture interpret Scripture, you would know this. Waiting for the breakthrough. Um, uh, you, you get sick and tired of waiting when really it's oftentimes not a God problem. It's us. And you know it's you. That's why you came to church today. Give yourself a hand for knowing it's you. You know, that's part of it. Yeah, no, uh, Joshua 5, verse 12, isn't about me. And they got to this, they got right to the verge of this promised land. And then all of a sudden, God asked Moses to do something kind of crazy. He, he said, I want you to go and circumcise everybody before we enter into this land. And that doesn't scare ladies, but let me tell you, this is, these are adult men. Come on, somebody. There's no anesthesia. No hospitals. There are those arrows that you see Indians like if you go down to the arch down there. This is a bad idea. Can you imagine that Sunday when Moses is up preaching? Hey, guess what? This week we're going to circumcise everybody. How many of y'all think the church would definitely be depleted right away? Now notice he's not actually preaching the text. He's just, he's hijacked the story. He's in charge of the narrative so that he can get his little jokes in there to you know, keep the, uh, the message entertaining and, and light. What? See, oftentimes before God takes you into this new promised land, he cuts something of the flesh off of you. It makes it... Inter- so what is my promised land? A, a, a new relationship? A better job? Uh, what are you talking about? 
really uncomfortable and you don't like it and you get mad. And in fact, you're a little sore. You're aggravated, you're agitated. And so that's exactly where they are. It says that the manna stopped as soon as they ate produce from the land. Yeah, in other words, when they got to the land, the land itself had produce and, you know, and God provided for them from the produce of the land rather than the manna in the wilderness. The manna, by the way, is miraculous. Because where were the children of Israel? They were in the middle of nowhere. They were not able to plant crops. Nope, not at all. And as a result of that, not being able to plant crops, there were no crops to be had. And if you're talking, uh, you know, a million or so people, how are they going to be fed? Answer, God miraculously provided for them in the wilderness. And that points to the way in which God miraculously provides for us in our wilderness wanderings. Remember what does scripture say? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so God sustains us through his word. God sustains us through the miracle of the Lord's Supper. Yeah, yeah these, this, and this is what God sustains our faith with in our wilderness wanderings as we are heading towards the promised land, eternal life began you know very accustomed to the way it always happens every day you get up manna falls down out of the sky millions of pounds just picture a, a you know a, I'll paint a picture for you right now picture a, a big railroad car and it's got maybe 45 to 50 cars behind it loaded with millions of pounds of manna that's how much it took every day god said give us this day our daily bread God began to drop this stuff down. And the word manna, anybody know what it means? Manna means what is it? Everybody shout, what is it? What is it? See, sometimes you're looking at God's provision going, what is it? You might even be looking. No, that, no. For your other half. And you're looking at him going, what is it? <laughs> Nicole was that way with me when we first, you know, 18 years ago when I was trying to get her to call me back. She couldn't recognize me the way I was dressed. So apparently David Crank is Nicole Crank's manna? What? Had an orange jacket on, long hair, shorts, and combat boots. And she saw me calling her. I, she didn't know that I was her miracle. <laughs> she didn't recognize it. Come on, somebody ought to help me today. Sometimes you don't recognize your miracle. Oh, but today, if, she, if somebody tries, if a girl even comes up and starts talking to me, oh boy, she'll be honest. She'll be like, I'll bust a cap in you right now. <laughs> because now she knows what it is. Come on, what it is, baby. You might not know what it is, but God's got good things for you. Provision for your vision, whether that's finances, whether that's... Manna is provision for your vision. Where are you getting that from the Bible? It ain't there. Whether that's, I wish I had somebody to help me preach today. God is going to change this circumstance, but right now we're addicted to some manna mentality. We're, we're addicted to a manna mentality. Yeah, so the children of Israel, 40 years, they developed a manna mentality out there in the wilderness. We're used to it. So one day, they ate from the land of Canaan. And as soon as they ate from the land of Canaan, that which once was stopped happening. Right. They didn't need it. They had 
grain silos. They had, you know, bushels of wheat and barley and grapes and, you know, they were living off the land. So they, they actually had groceries. Yeah, it, it went from manna to groceries. They have groceries now. That's an improvement, I think. Got up that morning. They thought they had pleased God. Got out of the tent. They just got circumcised. So it's not really a good day to start farming. <laughs> um, they already were eating off the produce of the land. The produce that was there and had been harvested by the Canaanites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and the Uptites and the Balletites. <sighs> oh, somebody ought to help me right now. This is an adult audience. So now, you know, Jimmy comes out of the tent. He unzips the tent. He's, he's accustomed to the manna being right there. Then he walks outside. He's walking trepidatiously, imitating a man who has just recently been circumcised, is in a wee bit sore in the saddle. Said, no more was it, what is it? Now it's, where is it? I finally got you. Um, where in Joshua chapter 5 does it say that? It doesn't. Joshua chapter 5, verse 10, when, while the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain, and manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand, and Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? Yeah, nothing about the children of Israel, you know, guys wandering out of the tent going, where's the manna? They clearly started eating right there uh, from the produce of the land. God switched them from manna to groceries, you know, to actual produce. And nothing about guys wandering out. And yet this is one of his major point, you know, major points. You know, they got they went from what is it to where is it? Yet nowhere in the text is it talk about that at all manna mentality uh, apparently a manna mentality is all about poverty and stuff the manna we learned to fry it we boiled it remember who is that guy said we boil shrimp we fry shrimp shrimp who, who's that guy come on help me who's that he, he figured out how to do it every way didn't he we get accustomed to well i've always had this job it seemed like it always, it's a generation thing. For 40 years, which in the Bible, every time you see the word 40, it's a generation. It's a mindset. A, a generation is not a mindset. A generation is a generation. What your dad and mom did, that's not going to work for you. What are you talking about? That has nothing to do with God miraculously providing for the children of Israel manna. Way we once did church, it, it's 
the theology hasn't changed, but the way you deliver it has to change. Um, no, the fact that the children of Israel went from being fed manna in the wilderness to eating off the produce of the land has absolutely nothing to do with how we do church. God was changing them and breaking them from this mentality of manna being every day. And he said, now, now that you guys have eaten from the promised land, now you're going to have to start learning the laws of spiritual farming. Where did God say that? Where in the text does it say, now you guys are going to have to learn the laws of spiritual farming? It's as if David Crank is just making stuff up. That's exactly what he's doing, by the way. And yet, nobody there has an open Bible and isn't raising their hands going, wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a second, David. Um, I'm not seeing what you're seeing in this text. Where is it again where God said that? He's lying to them. He's deceiving them. He's not teaching them what the Bible says. He's teaching them his theology, not God's. And that's the problem. Notice the narcissistic eisegesis. Moving along. Time for a Stephen Furtick update. Strategically cut to the new style. The beaver was fake and hot. You had one eye on the camera as you watched the crowd applaud. All of the pastors dreamed you'd be their mentor. You'd be their mentor, and you're so vain. Probably think the Bible's about you. You're so vain. I bet you think the Bible's about you. Don't you? Don't you? Who me several years ago when I was just a baby sheep? Well, you told me we were made to serve, and my time was all you'd need. But you twisted up the Bible so no one else had said a peep. I was afraid then I heard the real gospel, heard the real gospel and you're so vain. You probably think the Bible's about you, you're so vain. Bet you think the Bible's about you, don't you, don't you? All right, so we're heading down under to the Hillsong Conference, and we're going to be listening to a message delivered by Stephen Furtick. He's becoming quite the regular there at the Hillsong Conference. And I want you to hear Stephen Furtick, if you would, waxing eloquent about, well... John MacArthur and the claim that John MacArthur said that he was unqualified. And that's absolutely true. But the thing is, is that Stephen Furtick appears to be completely oblivious to what John MacArthur meant when John MacArthur said that Stephen Furtick was unqualified. Here's Stephen Furtick to explain. 
And I walked right in. And sometimes when the devil is trying to block you from receiving a blessing in your life and telling you you're nobody and you'll never be anything and you don't have what it takes, you got to point to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith, and flash that badge and say, I am a child of God. Come on, somebody. I belong here. All right. Obviously, we're middle of the message, but I wanted some context so you kind of get the idea of what he's preaching about. I'm right where I'm supposed to be. If God would have wanted somebody else, he'd have got somebody else. If God would have wanted it in me, he'd have put it in me. If God would have wanted me to be able to do it, he made me able to do it. But I guess he wanted me because God has options. Touch somebody and say, God has options and he chose you. God has options and he picked you. God has options and he put you where he put you for a purpose in this season. You belong here. So thanks for that, Paul. Thank you for reminding me that I have confidence in my belonging. I'm not just a believer. I'm a belonger. But things will shake your confidence. Sometimes you got to stand up because your calling is too important to forfeit your confidence. Yeah, it, you, you are so important, man. Your calling is way too important. You should never forfeit your confidence because you are so important. Because of your glitch. You have that little voice, that little chatterbox telling you why you don't belong here, and I have it too. And sometimes, if you're not good at reminding yourself of why you don't belong and why you're unworthy, people will help you to remember. I found that people are very gracious to remind you of all of the reasons you don't belong here. Now, one time I was getting ready to preach on a Saturday night, and I was playing a sermon in the background, not my sermon, but somebody else's sermon while I was getting ready to preach because I don't like to be alone with my thoughts. Drown out my insecurity with noise. Boy, this is a really raw session. So I was like listening to a preacher. Who knows? Could have been Pastor Casey Tree. Could have been Pastor Kevin Gerald. Could have been Pastor Brian Houston. I don't remember who it was. But after that sermon was over, I was kind of getting ready to go preach at our church over there in Charlotte, North Carolina. Casey Treat, Kevin Gerald. Uh Uh-huh. Both of them major Bible twisters and heretics, word of faith at that. And I had it playing in the background. I wasn't listening too much. I came back over and I wanted to put on another sermon. And you know how YouTube has the recommended section for what you should watch next? So I figured, well, hey, this is YouTube. They know me. (laughs) Whatever they think I should watch next, that's exactly what I'll watch next. So I decided to trust in the sovereignty of YouTube and I put my... uh, the next video they said I should watch, it was a famous theologian. He was being interviewed, and I, I knew who this guy was. I read his book in sem- I was assigned to read his book in seminary. <laughs> Full disclosure. But very- yeah, here's the irony. Uh, Furtick actually went to Southern Seminary for a little bit. The person he's talking about is John MacArthur. 
famous, very well-known, very well-respected. And it was an interview with him, like a question and answer at a pastor's conference. And they asked the man, they were like, uh, hey, um, let's go into a lightning round. Now remember, I've walked off, it's playing in the background, and I'm getting ready to preach. And they, they go into a lightning round, and they say to the theologian, we're going to bring up a few names of people, Christian leaders, and we want you to give us your quick response, what you think about them. And so they go through a few names, and then all of a sudden, the interviewer says to the theologian, he goes, Stephen Furtick. And I'm not going to lie to you, my first instinct was, I felt important. <laughs> this, they're talking about me. I, this guy wrote my seminary textbook. So I walked back in kind of excited, you know. And I walked in and I, I, thought, I thought, did they just say my name? And the interviewer goes, Stephen Furtick. And man, what happened next? I wish I hadn't walked back in the room. <laughs> the theologian, he kind of like slumps his shoulders and drops his head. And he sighs. As if to release the toxins of the mere consideration of my name. <laughs> Stephen Furtick. And the theologian responds and summarizes my entire ministry with one word. And after he sighed and slumped his shoulders, he said, unqualified. Now, before he goes on, I mean, as, as gripping as the story is, the question is, what was meant by unqualified? Well, the answer is found in Scripture. Let me give you an example. Second um, Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy is a biblical text that is part of the pastoral epistles. I referenced them earlier in today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Second Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 14 Paul, writing to Pastor Timothy, says, Remind them of these things, charge them before God not to quarrel about words which do no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who need not be ashamed or blushed with embarrassment, who can rightly handle the word of truth. Mm -hmm. Rightly handling the word of truth is one of the qualifications for a pastor. Titus chapter 1 elucidates a little bit more. Paul, writing to Titus, says this, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order, appoint elders in every town. Elders are our pastors. As I directed you, if anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Now, I'm not aware, per se, of any reason why, on the moral grounds, um, Stephen Furtick should technically be unqualified to be a pastor, or disqualified from being a pastor, except for this, he also, like Mark Driscoll, paid money to make him a New York Times best-selling author. He is not a legitimate New York Times best-selling author. He rigged the system, paid money to rig the system in order to make himself a New York Times best-selling author. I think 
that would actually technically disqualify him. But I don't even think that's what John MacArthur was getting at. Nope. The next part is, for a pastor must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith and not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Stephen Furtick is not qualified to be a pastor because he does not teach what's in accord with sound doctrine, and he doesn't mark those who teach false doctrine. Instead, he, well, does ministry with them. He is good friends with the modalist T.D. Jakes. This is a man who denies the doctrine of the Trinity. Doesn't believe it, doesn't teach it, doesn't confess it. Yeah, and uh, well, that makes him a full-blown, for real heretic. And yet Stephen Furtick recommends him, hangs with him, feeds his soul on uh, T.D. Jakes' sermons, tries to emulate T.D. Jakes' style. And yet, T.D. Jakes is a full-blown, word-of-faith, modalistic heretic. You notice the people he listens to, T.D. Jakes, Casey Treat, um, Kevin Gerald, all of them heretics. Stephen Furtick himself, a heretic. He takes biblical texts and twists them and makes them about himself. He is the, one of the kings of the Narsegetes. He does not rightly handle a biblical text. He always inserts himself in. And even at the Hillsong Conference, he totally missed the whole point of what Paul was preaching about his ministry as in, in, in contradistinction to the super apostles or so-called super apostles. So that's the way in which John MacArthur was basically saying Stephen Fur Furtick is unqualified. He doesn't meet the biblical qualifications for a pastor. He fails on moral grounds. He fails on doctrinal grounds. He truly is unqualified to be a pastor. And yet he doesn't seem to quite get what it is that they were referring to. Now there would have been a time before I was a mature Christian <laughs> where I would have thought of some words in response that would have made unqualified sound like a Valentine's Day card. Come on, somebody. And I wouldn't even need four syllables. Talk to me. But instead, something in me, I was surprised because I'm a fighter. And, and, and I don't know if I was just in a good mood. I don't know if I was just too distracted to care. But something in me started laughing. I started laughing at YouTube. I rewound it. I watched it again. I sent it over to some friends. I said, ha, ha, ha. And something in me thought, if you only knew. Something in me, it was weird. It was a shift because normally I would have thought like, I got to defend myself. He doesn't even know me. I never even met him. Who is he to say that to me? But something in me was just like, own it. 
That's how you felt your whole life anyway. Yeah, this is not about your feelings of insecurity and inadequacy that you struggle with. This is about meeting the biblical qualifications to be a pastor. Stephen Furtick, you do not. He just did you a favor. He just released you from feeling the need to prove yourself. Now you can preach. Um, It's not about proving yourself. You're not biblically qualified to be a preacher in Christ's church. You are unqualified. And it's so fascinating that you are so biblically illiterate and obtuse, you are missing the whole point of what MacArthur meant when he said you were unqualified. And besides, you need to send that man a thank you card because he just gave you the title for your next book. I wrote a little book. And Furtick's new book, Unqualified, misses the whole point, too, of the fact that he is not qualified to be a pastor. He needs to be sat down, and he needs to actually, before he ever sits up, stands back up again, learn sound biblical doctrine, and repent and be forgiven and ask for forgiveness for lying and deceiving and making himself a New York Times bestselling author, which is, well, deceit of the highest magnitude, the kind of magnitude that truly does disqualify a man from being a pastor. All right, we're up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, many in there, at Christian. Quick break. When we ha- come back, heading over to Audacious Church, uh, a sermon about how adventure awaits us. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. 
If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Audacious Church from Manchester in the United Kingdom. Uh, Josh uh, Coker uh, presiding. The name of the sermon series is Adventure Awaits. The name of the sermon we'll be listening to is Into the Wild. Into the Wild. And the best way I can put it is this is a complete utter train wreck which shows that um, Josh doesn't have any exegetical skill whatsoever. He shouldn't be preaching or teaching, teaching Sunday school, or even teaching a Bible study to animals at the local shelter. Yeah, it's that bad. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Josh Coker, and Adventure Awaits. I believe Church Adventure is waiting for every single one of us. That it's not a destination, but it's a, it's a choice every day that we get to step into. Now, notice the important words that began the sermon. I believe. This is a creed. But what he believes is irrelevant. The question is, what does Scripture say? Does Scripture say that adventure awaits us every day? All we need to do is step into it. Not familiar with that biblical text. All that God has for us. And, uh, and I'm so excited what he's doing and, and, and speaking through us as a church now, uh, ahead of what he's about to do at our best conference, our Audacious Conference 2016. And uh, so make sure you're there and a part of that. Um, now, I, I'm just wondering, has, have any of you kind of gone to do something, kind of made a decision and then got to it and then just bottled it? You know, like you're kind of thinking about, oh, maybe this would be a good idea. And then you sort of weigh up the risks and you get to it and you just think, mm, nah, I'm not going to do that. Well, I remember kind of one of my earlier memories of this was, uh, I want to take you back to my first crush. Is that all right? I know, yeah. Get a little bit hotter in here than it already is. Well, uh, I want to take you back to when I was nine years old. 
I know, I started early. And uh, I moved to a different place and I was attending a different primary school. And when I got there, one of the overwhelming things was, wow, that girl is really hot. Okay, just kind of say, saying it as it is. And it was my first crush. It was the girl of my dreams. See, up to that point, I didn't really know how it all worked. I don't know how to ask a girl. I never kissed a girl. I don't really know what to do. And all the people around us, all the lads were like, well, you've got absolutely no chance. She was the year ahead of me. I know, yeah. Player. And, uh, and she was the hottest girl in the school, as people would say. And they were like, you have got no chance with this girl. And I was kind of thinking, how do I approach this? How do I ask her out? I don't really know what to do. I've not done this before. And then the school announced that there was going to be an end of term disco. Come on, primary school disco. So the week leading up to it, I went to a lot of preparation. You know, I had a shower. Uh, I found, you know, that set of clothes when you're nine years old. It's that one set that you wear to everything that's slightly posh. And uh, I put as much gel in my hair as I could. Uh, I stole some of my dad's aftershave, did the home alone, kind of slapping it on. And you got there and it was absolutely brilliant. And, and you know, you've got your lo- classic local DJ, like, come on, kids, who's ready to party? And everyone's kind of going for it. Classic primary school disco. All the lads are on one side. All the girls are on the other side. Who knows what I'm talking about? Yeah, I'm nine years old. I'm just kind of like keeping it simple, keeping it cool. Like, you know, stick to this. This is all good. This is my moment. Just weighing up when to do it. You know, the lads strategizing together, like one by one, kind of going over there onto the battlefield, but one by one being shot down by the girls. And we're kind of dragging them back in, into the trench and regrouping and like, okay, who's going to be the next one to go out? And we're, I'm just kind of picking my moment. Then the cha-cha slide comes on. Which is really helpful if you're, you know, like me and you can't really dance. You know, strict instructions of what to do in that song is really helpful. You know, cha-cha slides going off. You know, all that kind of thing. And, and I'm kind of picking my moment. And it's getting later and later on into the night. You know, it's at least 6.30. It's a primary school disco. And I'm kind of thinking, oh, my moment is coming. And I don't know what to do. And I, I kind of edge out. And I'm like, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just going for it right now. It comes to the last song of the night. And I'm about to say something. I'm about to step up. I'm about to ask this girl out, the girl of my dreams. See, all the lads were there behind me saying, yeah, it's never going to happen. And, and I, I go to step out and I bottle it. The, disc- the girl of your dreams, you, you, you bottled it. Okay, that's just horrible. I mean, if only you had gone to Audacious Church when you were growing up, I mean, you would have been able to marry the girl of your dreams. The disco finish, and I walk out, and that endeth the story of my first crush. It's okay, because a few years later, I've met my wife, Carly, which is good. Yeah, she comes in. Second place. Yeah, he, he missed the girl of his dreams, though. That's, that's the way I'm hearing the story. A good clap there. See, in life, it's really easy to be shaped by the culture around us. We're all immersed in it from the home that we live in to the places that we work, to the schools, the universities that we're in, uh, the culture, the, the sort of beliefs and behaviors of a set group of people. We're all shaped we're all around the atmosphere that is shaping the way that we think, our perspectives, the way that we speak and our behaviors. And, uh, and it's a culture that often causes us to, to, to step back where, life, like where a comfortable life becomes our life's aim. Yeah, that culture, you know, all the culture wants you to do is be comfortable, man. If only they would understand that God wants you to be uncomfortable. I mean, that 
that's the terrible thing about the culture, you know, is they want you to be comfortable. Yeah. Where it's better to kind of settle for what is rather than to, to kind of take a risk and go to what could be. Yeah, if only the culture valued risk-taking the way Scripture taught it. Oh, the world would be so much better. It's a culture that says, uh, you know, as long as I've got all these things together, as long as I'm comfortable, as long as it's pretty, you know, it's, it's easy, as long as I'm not sort of um, kind of pulled out of my comfort zone too much, as long as I'm safe and I've got it all together, then it's okay. But I believe tonight that adventure waits for every single one of us. Right. Because we're going to go to those great adventure passages in the Bible that promise us adventure rather than comfort. Oh, this is such an important doctrine. Mm-hmm. It's not taught in Scripture, Joe. I mean, sorry, Josh. Who wants to leave behind the tame life, the life where we're just, it's safe, it's ordinary, it's routine, it's nine to five, we've got it all together, we're in control. Our- yeah, the routine, the nine to five, that's getting in the way of what God really wants to do. Wrong. Read your Bible. Read like the tail end of the epistle of, uh, to the Ephesians. And you'll see that the good works that we're called to do as Christian, yeah, as Christians, that's done in the mundane. It's done as husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, employer, employee. That's where we do our good works. The way we serve our neighbor is in the mundane work that we do in our jobs. Uh huh. That's where our good works are done. I reckon adventure waits. For those who are ready to leave the tame life and step out into the wild. Tyler Love preached tonight into the wild. So I want to speak to you from uh, from a verse that we've been speaking and prophesying over us. Uh, of Ephesians 3.20 in the message version. It's coming up on the screen. It says this, God can do anything. Come on, we sit, we serve. Yeah, you've missed the whole point of Ephesians 3.20. Yeah, context, context, context. These are three rules for sound biblical exegesis. I know I've recently talked about this, but our context for Ephesians 3.20 begins in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant to you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Yep, that's right. He's praying here. How does Paul's prayer then end? Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Yeah, Ephesians 3.20 is a benediction. It's the finishing up of a prayer to him who is able. It's directing our the prayer to the one who is able to do more than we think or imagine. To him be all glory. You see the direction? It's to God. This is not a command to go out and, well, live an adventurous life and step into the wild. That's to miss the whole point altogether. Ephesians 3.20 is not about that at all. We believe in a God who can do anything. 
How many is the God in the Bible that says, I am? That he created all things. He holds all things. He is able. With him, anything is possible. The Bible says, Ephesians 3.20, God can do anything, you know, far more than you could. Yeah, God, that's what God is capable of doing. We're dealing with his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence. Correct. Yes, God can do anything. It's not saying that he's going to do anything. It's saying he can do anything, and this is not an invitation to step out into the wild and have the adventure of a lifetime. You could ever imagine, guess, or request in your wildest dreams. In your wildest dreams. See, a few weeks ago, I was on holiday with my family, uh, and I was told about a certain uh, a course, a run that you could go on, and, and I thought, okay, that would be a pretty good run where you'd kind of take the... So this is personal story number two. One, we, the first story, we heard about his missing of the love of his life and settling for second best, the woman he's now married to. <clears throat> and now a personal story number two. I wonder if we'll hear anything substantive about Jesus. Take the road across the mountains and, uh, well, probably more like hills. Uh, we're in Spain and, uh, and, and kind of when you got to the edge of the path, there would be a staircase. And I was told that you kind of just go down the staircase, you keep going a little bit, and eventually you get down to, to some, like a rock area where the sea came up and it was like a little cove and it was really beautiful, really isolated for a swim. So the next day, I woke up really early while I was on holiday, at least 9.30, and I got my running gear on, and I was running down the road, and you know, you're on holiday, and people looking at you with a look to say, what is this evil? Exercise on holiday, that should not happen. And they walk past you, you know, with that ice cream, massive bag of crisps, and, and you're running along, and I was doing my run, and it was really warm, and I got to the edge of the path where I was told about, and I couldn't really see the, the set of stairs that was going off. And as I looked around and eventually saw what was more like a few rocks that went off the, the path down, and, but it, it pretty much finished pretty quickly. So a load of trees, a load of bushes, and so I was like, mm, shall I go for it, shall I not? Well, they said it was all right, so maybe I'll go for it. And, and so I kind of took the path down and pushed myself through these trees, pushed myself through these like sort of thorn bushes, and as I was going through, I was lifting the thorn bushes back and I would scrape my arm and it was cut a little bit and bleeding. And it was really like an epic adventure. And I was kind of bleeding from the, from the shin and I was trying to get through. And, and suddenly I was like, this is another dead end and another dead end. I don't know how I'm about to get down to this cove. And, and eventually I pushed through and there it was, this incredibly beautiful cove where I was able to go for a swim. And church, I believe tonight that God is calling us to leave the well-worn path behind and to step out into the wild. Because you went on a swim on holiday? That's why God's calling us? Oh, okay. Well, yeah, life has some kind of significance for, you know, how I need to align my own life. I had no idea. See, let me tell you, the wild represents our response to the call of God for an adventure. Right, yeah, all because you did some exercise on holiday. Uh huh. See, God is calling every single one of us to follow him into the wild, into adventure, into the God dream, into every single thing that he has for you tonight. I yeah, which biblical texts talk about God calling us into the God dream? I'd like to see those, please. 
I believe God wants to speak to you tonight. He wants to speak. He wants to birth new dreams. He wants to ignite old dreams. And he- yeah, it's, it's great that you believe that. Do you have any biblical text to back that up? And he's calling us. He's coming up to you right now, face to face, and saying, will you follow me? Will you follow me? Will you step out of where you've been? Because where you've been might have been good, bad, or ugly, but he's calling you to more. He is. He's calling me to more. Where does the Bible say that? See, the Bible says God can do anything more than your wildest dreams. I want to declare to you tonight, but there is more for you. There is more for your life. There is more for your family. There is more for your workplace as we follow God. There, there's more. Okay. Um, where, where does it say that again? You, you made reference to the Bible. Where does it say that in the Bible? It's stepping out into the wild into adventure, into God call, into all that he has for us. As we, as we step out, he's got more for us. Right, more, yeah. See, as we're kind of going through this series of Adventure Awaits, we're looking at different Bible characters, and I just want to speak briefly to you tonight about one of the greats, I think, of the Bible. And Right, so finally we're going to get to a Bible character who will demonstrate through his life, that God's calling us to more and to great adventure. Who would that be? This guy, he's called David. Uh, David. Mm-hmm. Right. Typologically, one of the most important messianic figures in Scripture. Uh, Jesus is called the son of David, you know. Um, if you don't understand how this points to Christ, you don't understand the story of David. And uh, David is the man. He's yeah, like, yeah. he is the epitome of a man, right? He's like a mix of Arnold Schwarzenegger and, and like William Shakespeare. Right, I see. Um, will you be reading any significant portions of Scripture and properly exegeting them regarding King David? Do you know what I mean? Like with one hand, he can like just bust up everyone in the room and with the other, he's writing these like really emotional poems and Psalms. It's like, he is the epitome of a man. And I want to kind of focus on his life a little bit tonight. So I wonder if you could turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16 with me. As we look at this man, but as we turn to this part of his 1 Samuel 16, okay. His story, this part of his adventure, nothing had really happened up to now. David was just a shepherd boy. He was a young man in a family and nothing would really happened. And this, what I'm about to read was the beginnings of his adventure, the call that God brought to him. And just to give you a little bit of context, the people of God had had a king, but he wasn't doing so well. So God was looking for a new king. And so he called Samuel, the man of God at that time, to go and find a king. And he sent him to a man called Jesse, his house in Bethlehem, because he had a whole heap of sons. And and so God sent Samuel to Jesse's house to find a son to be the next king. And I'm going to pick it up in verse, verse 10. It says this, Jesse presented his seven sons to Samuel. Samuel was blunt with Jesse. God hasn't chosen any of these. Then he asked Jesse, is this it? Are there no more sons? Well, yes, there's the runt. Wow. Thanks, dad. Dad award goes to. There's the runt, but he's out there tending sheep. 
Samuel ordered Jesse, get out, get, go and get him. We're not moving from this spot until he's here. Jesse sent him uh, and uh, he was brought in. The very picture of health, bright eyed, good looking. And God said, up on your feet, anoint him. This is the one. Samuel took his flask of oil and anointed him, anointed David with his brothers standing around him, watching The spirit of the God entered David like a rush of wind. God vitally empowering him for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. um, How many sons did Jesse have? Well, more than one. He had quite a few. What about their adventure? Mm -hmm. Why are we keying in on David if somehow, you know, David apparently is uh, the prototype of the adventure that you're going to have in your life. Hmm. Again, my question is, well, what about his other brothers? Didn't they get adventures too? Why did God ignore them? Why didn't God send them on an adventure as well? So I want you to get a picture of, of what we've just read. David, the, the youngest in the family. He was out tending sheep and, and all of a sudden God came and showed up. And, and Right, exactly. God showed up. But why should we believe God's going to show up and send us on an adventure just because, you know, King David had an adventure? And I don't think he would really describe his life as one great adventure. He suffered quite a bit. And had a, and David had an, an incredible encounter with God that there was a significant moment that would then shape and steer the rest of his life. See, every call into the wild starts with a God encounter, where God speaks. Uh, uh, a God encounter, right. Yeah. Um, where is this God encounter actually laid out for us as a doctrine? Sounds to me like you're just twisting the story of the call and the anointing of David. Yeah, the anointing of David really is an important uh, point, and it's messianic to the core. Uh, you seem to be oblivious about the fact that Scripture actually is about Christ and you think it's about you, and that's the problem. And I believe he's going to speak to us powerfully tonight. But see, as I was reading this story, it kind of struck me that, you know, reading it, and on paper, David almost missed it. No, he didn't. Um, He didn't almost miss it. He was not there uh, because his father didn't call him in from his sheep herding uh, duties. Like this was a major moment. The man of God was coming to the house. Jesse had got his best on show. One son after another, they paraded up and down like some kind of catwalk. And one after the other, God said, no, not him. No, not him. No, not him. And when we read that story, it's almost like David missed his own call. Uh, No, it's not. But the good news is that the call finds you where you're at. No, the good news is that Christ bled and died for our sins. That's the good news. That's the gospel. And that he rose again on the third day bodily for our justification. That's the good news. God knows exactly where you are. That even though you might be completely in in nowhere's land. Yeah, this story isn't about me, even if I'm living in a nowhere land. He's a real nowhere man living in his nowhere nanny man. God sees you. God knows you. God understands where you are. And his call comes to you where you're at. 
Uh, no, this text doesn't say that. You're just reading yourself into the text. See, the good news is we don't have to be qualified. We don't have to be all that on the outside. That God sees you. God knows you. And God will find you and bring a call to where you're at right now. That is coming to us in our brokenness, in our mess, in our thriving, in our success. And he's saying, come on, I've got more for you. The- no, actually, God's not saying that. The-, the call comes to you where you're at. He comes to you and says, I know this is where you are, but come and follow me. Come and follow me. There's an adventure waiting for every single one of you. If you're just ready to step out. Yet, yeah, no, actually, again, no text says that. You're just making stuff up. It's not even in First uh, Samuel. <sighs> yeah, let's take a look. First Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him? Uh, from being the king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil. Go, I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And notice what it says here. I have provided for myself a king from among his sons. Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears of it? He's going to kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to Yahweh. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him whom I declare to you. Samuel did what Yahweh commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when he looked on Eliab, he thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are these all your sons? And he said, well, there remains yet the youngest. But behold, he's keeping the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. If we, will, we will not sit down until he comes. And then he sent and brought him in. And now he was ruddy. And had beautiful eyes, he was handsome, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So now we have David, the anointed yet not yet reigning king. Mm -hmm. Sound at all like Jesus? Jesus was anointed by the prophet John the Baptist in his baptism in the Jordan River. The anointed, yet not yet reigning king, Jesus, at the time. Yeah, this is all pointing typologically to Christ. David is a major Christological, typological character. This is all pointing to Jesus. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, and because David you know, you know, had an encounter with God, you too can have an encounter with God, and God's going to call you to more and set you on a great life of adventure, the way David had adventure. I mean, that's to miss the whole point. There is no biblical text that talks this way. Call finds you where you're at. And he finds David. God finds David. 
and brings him to a moment of encounter where he speaks to him. So I don't know about you, I, I could take you to moments in my life where I had a powerful encounters, significant moments that shaped Oh, I'm, I'm sure you can. I'm, I can't wait to hear yet another story about you. Shaped and steered everything. Moments where God came and spoke to me as a young teenager who, I, I went to church, but I was, you know, I was just there because my parents were there. But there was a moment that changed everything where it became real to me. Because I know like David, he, he spoke to me and maybe some of you, he spoke to you and he revealed. Really, God spoke to you the way he spoke to David. No, that isn't pretentious at all, is it? Who he truly was. Where before that, it was just a pattern to follow. It was just a tradition. It was just a building that we went to. But then it became personal. That God wants to encounter. You, God wants you to encounter him so he can reveal who he is. Again, no biblical text says this. It reveals who you truly are. The labels that would have been on David's life of, of just, you know, the youngest one, the run, the, the isolated, the lost, the, the forgotten, that God was ripping off those labels. God was giving him a new name, a new label that he was saying, you're mine. I love you. I've got something great for you. I can take you to those moments where God spoke to me. Yeah, again, my question is, well, when did, uh, uh, well, David's seven other brothers, when did they get their God encounter, their moment when when they got to shine and go on their adventures? I mean, that's weird if that's really how this text is to be understood. What do we think about all those others who were just left in the dust and never got to go on their adventures? I put a call on my life where he found me where I was. Not the best choice for God, but he found me where I was and came down. See, we don't, we don't have to work our way. We're not a performance like getting, trying to get God's attention. His call, he, he comes to find us where we're at. And he calls us to something greater. I could take you moments to where God spoke to me about what I would be doing right now. About stadiums, about building church, about being an impact around the world. Like just stuff that I look at and go. God said you were going to be an impact around the world, really. Obviously not an impact for good, but for evil. God, this can only be you because when I hear it and when you're speaking it to me, it just looks ridiculous. See, how do you know what a God dream looks like? It just looks impossible. Right. God's calling him to stadium, you know, and you know, to be in, have an impact around the world. That's got to be from God. Right. Uh-huh. No biblical text says that either. A God dream can never be fulfilled while you sat and you stood and you're living in a tame life. But actually, we've got to be a people who step out because the tame life is all about what I can do. What I can do in my strength, what I can achieve. But let me tell you, at the end of me, there's not, there's not much more. I'm pretty boring, so, you know, as a human, not do much, but with God. The Bible says all things are possible, and God has got a call. Yeah, actually, it says all things are possible for those who, what, love the Lord. Yeah, um, boy, this is a mess. Call for you. He's calling you out from where you are right now. He's saying there is more. There is more. He wants to birth a dream that you would laugh at and say, God, are you... Yeah, no biblical text says that God wants to birth a dream in me. You're just making stuff up still. Joking. Have you seen me? Have you seen my strength? Have you seen my skill set? And God says, yeah. But I choose you anyway. I'm calling you out from where you are. 
He's not waiting for you to get it all together. He's not waiting for you to be perfect. He's calling you out from where you're at right now and say, come on, just step out. Follow me. Follow me. My voice is leading you. See, David had this incredible God encounter that shaped everything, that changed everything. But I love it. After, after we kind of read this account, it's almost like everything changed, but nothing changed. Like David went from this massive hilltop experience, this like being paraded and anointed and filled with the spirit. And, and he was kind of in front of all of his brothers and had this amazing high moment of call. But the very next day, it was almost like nothing had changed. David went back out to feeding the sheep, being a shepherd boy. And I love the fact that I love the kind of the character of David to just get on and be faithful. See, if there's one thing that I've learned, when you're called, it's our opportunity to just be faithful. Because I've learned faithfulness now opens the door to what is next. See, because when you are called, opportunity finds you. Yeah, okay. So now if you're faithful, then that'll open up the doors to what's next. Again, no biblical text says this. It's just that he's discovered this because this is all experiential, narcissistic theology. And yet, put theology in air quotes. David didn't have to go and strive to try and make the king. He wasn't trying to impress everyone. He wasn't entering competitions. He wasn't kind of putting himself forward. Opportunity found him because he was just faithful now. He gave his best to now. To those few sheep he had, he gave his all. And his faithfulness now opened the door to what was next. An opportunity found David. See, it's almost like everything changed for David, but nothing changed. Everything seemed the same, but David was different. Now he was living with the call of God. Now he was living anointed, filled with the spirit, empowered, equipped for everything that God was about to call him to do. To be a king over his people. And see, David, from that moment, he began to step out. He began to follow the God opportunity. He began to walk into the wild, following Jesus. Walk into the dream that God had birthed in him. Walk into the adventure that God had always had waiting for him. And see, the young shepherd boy, the most unlikely person, the the ordinary unskilled, ungifted kind of person that God would choose for what he wanted him to do, found himself in front of the army of Israel fighting a giant, found himself into the palace, found himself as he, became, as he continued to, to follow God, found himself the commander of the army in all these incredible places. And I'm sure he thought, oh my word, how did I get here? But for the grace and the call of God. See, the call of God. Yeah, no texts say these things. You're just like imagining things now about David, kind of superimposing your psychology on David. And, well, it's got to be this. It's got to be that because that's what I would think. Uh-huh. Notice he's not exegeting a text at all. This is a total, utter, narcissistic train wreck. God, as he, as he stepped out into the wild following Following God, it took him to all sorts of different places, to incredible highs. But stepping out... Oh yeah, he traveled the world, man. You should see his photo album. Stepping out into the wild, David also found that he became a target. And King Saul, the, the, not, you know, the bad king, kind of chased him out. And David found himself on the run. 
hiding in caves, surrounded, fearing for his life, surrounded by broken people. That's where David found himself following the call of God. But as I've studied, as I've read the life of David, there's one thing that inspires me. See, I can relate to David as a normal young teenager who had an encounter with God to do something great. But I I love David because as you read his life, what was it that allowed him to keep stepping out in the good times and the bad times? What was it that allowed him to keep trusting God and, and, and stepping out even when it looked scary, even when it looked possible? What made him not bottle it? Every time a God opportunity came, and I believe it. Yeah, what was it? I'd like to know, what does the Bible say? How did David keep from bottling it? David's trust, his ability to trust came from his ability to listen. Uh, what? That David was more bothered and held on to what God had said rather than what he could see. That David kept God's voice higher and louder than any other voice. Every voice of discouragement, any, every voice of pessimism and negativity. He drowned it out for the voice of God. He, he did? See, growing up, most of what we believe, we believed it because someone once told us. You know, you know what I mean? Like, you know, does any, anyone have a parent where they were like, oh, you know, if the ice cream truck comes down and the, and the music's playing, oh, sorry, the, the ice creams are actually run out. Anyone, anyone else believe that? You know, as kids, we were told things like the moon was made of cheese. Anyone believe that one? That if you ate crusts, your hair would turn curly. If you ate uh, carrots, you could see in the dark. The teachers lived in school. All those sorts of things. If someone kissed you, then you're automatically married. Some of you are like, well, I'm glad that one ain't true. (laughs) See, we believe what we believe because someone once told us. Right. Just like these people are believing that God has more of a dream destiny adventure thingy for them just because he said so. But the Bible doesn't teach it. And church, I really want to encourage you tonight that our ability to trust God, and this is what I really want you to grab a hold of tonight, our ability to trust God comes from our ability to listen. See, Romans 10 verse 17 says this, before you trust, you have to listen. Yeah, Romans 10 says faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Yeah, that in the context there, Paul is talking about how are people to believe in him whom they have never heard, referring to Jesus. How are they to trust in him if no one has been sent? Yeah, so you, you, people got to be sent to actually preach the gospel, to proclaim Christ. That's what he's referring to. And he notes the fact that faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. It's one of the means of grace by which people are regenerated. Before you trust, you have to listen. So every time the call of God draws you out to step out in faith, to step out and do something, to step out and pray for someone, to step out and invite someone to church, to step out and be generous, to step out on the adventure, to step out into the wild. We can do it from a place of trust because we've heard God. Yeah, again, that's not what Romans 10 is talking about at all. You're referring to some kind of direct revelation that we're supposed to receive. That's 
not what the Apostle Paul is referring to. In fact, let me read out that portion of Romans chapter 10. We're in Romans 10, and the verse in question that I was pointing to was Romans 10, 17. And um, here's what it says, Romans uh, chapter 10, starting at verse 11. We'll apply our three rules, context, context, context. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? How are they to hear without someone preaching? Notice here, this isn't talking about a direct revelation at all. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. See, Romans 10, 17, and the verses immediately before it, are teaching nothing about receiving some direct revelation that we're supposed to hear and believe. I mean, wow, it's, like, it's as if Josh is like trying really hard to avoid teaching what the Bible actually says. Because our ability to trust comes from our ability to listen. If God says it, then I'm going to do it. Because God, I can trust you because you've said it. My trust is in you, God. Because I know you've said it. I know David. I, I can. What are you trusting him for? That you're going to be a mover and shaker and have an impact around the world? Or are you trusting him for your salvation and the forgiveness of your sins? Christ has promised the second one. The first that I mentioned, nowhere taught in scripture. I can, every time you read it and he came up against something or he was a target and he was being chased around or the, the time he was, you know, up against Goliath or any kind of army, uh, he had the courage, the audacity to step out. Why? Because he was more concerned and held on to what God had said to him than what he could see. See, the call of God into the wild is a scary one. The call of God into the wild is not an easy one. It's not just like, oh, that sounds really nice. Let's go for that. But adventure that is waiting for us is going to need us to grab a hold of the word of God. And I believe passionately that he wants to speak to you tonight. See, for me and my wife, Carly, we are, we are ruined to the tame. We are ruined from just living a, a normal, average, routine life. We can't do it. Yeah, you're ruined by false doctrine. Your, your faith has been shipwrecked by false teaching. Because we've had a moment where God spoke to us. And even when we've stepped out and it's looked impossible, and even at the beginning of this year where we felt like we felt the full force of the enemy who prowls around as a hunter, like a lion in the wild, trying to pull us down. And every time we felt like we were trying to take a step out for God, it just got a little bit darker and a little bit more difficult. And it was tough. And every moment that we wanted to bottle it, every moment we wanted to fall back and retreat, every moment where we thought, you know what, this adventure, living in the wild, it's just too much. It's not a safe place. I want to walk back to where it's tame. I want to walk back to where it's safe. And let me tell you, every moment we came to a place of saying, God, 
What are you saying? God, I'm going to return to what you called me to do. And I don't care because I can keep trusting and I can keep stepping out because I know you've spoken to me. And so before I step out, I'm, I'm going to listen to your voice. I can have faith. I can step out because he's spoken. And that's what I'm holding on to. See, it's his word that gives me courage. Yeah, you're not holding on to the written word. Some direct revelation you think you got. You didn't get that from God, Josh. That wasn't God speaking to you. When you open up God's word and you read the Bible correctly in context, that is where God is speaking. Not in your head, not in your heart. Whatever you think you received via direct revelation from God, that was not God speaking. That was the devil. It's his word that gives me strength. It is his word. It's his dream. It's his spoken drawing that is calling me out. That I, I, can, I can have courage. Because God has spoken to me. Every time we've wanted to retreat, every time we've wanted to fall back, God would come and speak again. Inspired by David's life. To hold on. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God the Holy Spirit is now descending on the audience in, in order to get them to make decisions of some kind. Apparently, the decision to hear God's voice directly so that you two can be called into an adventure after having a God encounter. None of this is actually taught in Scripture. To the Word of God in the most difficult times and in the greatest times. See, even through the difficult parts of the wild, even every time we're faced with something and, and, and an, an opportunity to step out, let me tell you, every time you hold on to his word and you do, God always comes through. And I can tell you story after story of even these last few months of what we've been able to see as we've relentlessly kept. Yeah, telling your story is not compelling. Show me it in scripture. Kept stepping out, living in a place of uncomfortableness, living in a place that's not easy. I could take you and, and, and show you to many people who've got saved week in and week out and made decisions for Jesus. I could take you to people with stories of breakthrough. Not because we're great, but we're just willing to keep stepping out, keep going, keep living in a place that's uncomfortable. It's not easy. Stepping. Yeah, it's not comfortable living in an uncomfortable place, right? Yeah. Stepping out into the wild. See, God spoke to me years ago. I feel maybe three or four years ago about a program about taking and, and impacting and encouraging, championing those that are of risk of exclusion and those that are some of the most difficult people. And, and we felt even in a, in a time where things were maybe a little bit difficult because God had said it. We thought, come on, let's just do it. And we've been able to roll out programs in school that shouldn't have even happened, that we didn't even have the qualifications to do. But because God had said it, see, my trust comes from my ability to listen. My ability to trust, my ability to step out into the wild comes from my ability to listen and hear from God. And what is he saying to you? See, every time I listen to God and step out, I just see the supernatural. We see breakthrough. We've seen incredible things happen in school. Yeah, talk about focusing us on the wrong word of God. He's not pointing us to scripture. We see people get saved. We see miracles. Why? Because we're audacious enough to follow the call of God into adventure. 
Yeah, because we're audacious enough. It's all about us because we're so amazing. Church adventure is awaiting for every single one of us. Not as a destination, but as a daily choice. As we hear the voice of God and trust him enough to step out. So as you go into your life this week, what's some of the voices that you actually need to turn down? Yours. Some of the people that are bringing in negativity and pessimism. Maybe it's the voice in your head that you just need to turn down a little bit so that you can turn up the voice of God. Maybe it's the social media that you need to turn down a little bit. Maybe it's the TV or that book or that magazine that we just need to turn down a little bit so we can keep God's voice the loudest voice in our lives because let me tell you when you live a life listening and hearing the voice of God it will give you the trust that you need to continually step out into the wild into adventure that is waiting behind every opportunity into the dream that he's birthing in you tonight he's not birthing any dreams in people It's our ability to listen. God, what are you saying right now? Because God, if you say it, then I'm ready to step out into it. So he's not pointing him to the word of God. What are you, guy, what are you saying, God? I, I'm trying to hear you. And we're seeing only the things that we're seeing just because come to a place where we can trust God with what he said. Yeah, you don't trust him with what he said in the written word. Oh, man. That's where we'll see miracles. That's where we'll see breakthrough. That's where we'll see change. As we step out into the wild, as we leave the well-worn path, the mundane, the average, the tame behind, and trust God enough just to step out. Yeah, there you go. That was a total train wreck. I don't know. He totally bottled it on that one, didn't he? Wow, what a mess. And notice the emphasis. The, you know, the, the word of God was twisted in order to point us to another word, some word that God's supposed to be speaking to you directly. But nowhere in Scripture are we told that God is going to speak to us directly and birth a dream in us. All of his faith was in the so-called direct revelation, while the written word of God is utterly clueless about what it says or means, and it, it's inconsequential. The thing he's trusting in is the thing he experienced rather than the text he was reading. And that's the problem. The word of God is living and active, the written word of God, sharper than any double-edged sword, not some dream destiny thingy that God's supposed to reveal to your heart in order to birth the dreams, to call you on an adventure. None of that is taught in Scripture. These people are deeply deceived. That was an example of the blind leading the blind, and nobody was truly pointed to Christ, and they learned nothing about what Christ has actually taught. Wow, what a mess. What did you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.